Let's get ready to roll. Lead Like a Lady features amazing women at the top of their game who know what it's like to be the only woman in the room. They're here to share their stories, inspire greatness, and provide advice to all the women coming up behind them. Now, here's your host, Army veteran and retired FBI assistant special agent in charge, Gina L. Osborne. Welcome to Lead Like a Lady. I'm your host, Gina L. Osborne. Today, I am thrilled to have Emmy Award-winning actor and director Betty Thomas on the show. As I worked on this episode, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to describe Miss Betty. I mean, how do you describe a woman who started her career holding her own with the likes of John Candy and Bill Murray in the Second City Improv Company? She was nominated for six Emmys, starring as Lucy Bates on the acclaimed television show, Hill Street Blues. She directed superstars like Eddie Murphy and Howard Stern in feature films and made news shattering box office records as a top grossing female film director. How do I describe Betty Thomas? Extraordinary. Now sit back, relax, and prepare to be inspired. Welcome to the show, Betty. I am so happy to have you here. We met at the Directors Guild many years ago, and I felt this immediate connection with you. I think your story is so important because you made it to the top in Hollywood, becoming not only an Emmy Award-winning director, but one of the top female grossing directors of all time. We want to know how you did it. Okay. Where do you want me to start? Way, way back? Please. <laughs> okay, good. So uh, probably you probably don't know who I am. It is possible you really don't know who I am, these humans listening, but uh, I happen to be six foot one, and I have been six foot one since I was 13 years old. So at that point, I was seriously considering the circus, and I thought I could be the tallest woman in the world. It was possible. I was 13 or 14, maybe almost 14, 6'1", and I was pretty sure no man was ever going to, or boy, was ever going to like me for being so tall. But um, all those things were untrue. So I, I like to start by saying anything I thought I could imagine for myself when I was 13, almost none of it came true. Fast forward, what would sort of become a career changer for you was when you went to work at Second City, which was a comedy club in Chicago. After I went to college and got thrown out, I was in Chicago for a <laughs> while, and I established sort of a home front, a community which I think has always been important. And I think it is always important to creative people to have a community of support around you and advising you maybe even, or who cares if they're advising, they're, they're having the same struggle that you're having. Whatever it is, it's good to connect with people and have a community. And Second City is definitely a community. And so I came to Chicago. I happened to live down the street from Second City. I the guys who were in the Second City at the time would eat at the restaurant where I was a waitress when I wasn't going to the Art Institute. Waitressing, by the way, I, I always introduce myself as saying, hi, I am a waitress. I am basically innately somewhere deep inside me a waitress. And I, I think it serves me in some ways. It served me as a director, I suspect. Perhaps it's 
been detrimental in some ways. I'm not sure, but I, I see the serving more than the detrimental. So I, uh, I already knew about Second City and that it existed. Not, I wouldn't have learned that if I hadn't gone to been thrown out of school and gone to Chicago. So again, I say, the river flows. You go with the river. You, you go here, you go there, you see what happens. It's never really bad news. It's not that it doesn't seem like bad news at the time, especially to my parents. It seemed like extremely bad news, um, but <laughs> it wasn't for me. For me, it was good. So what was it like at Second City during this time with all that big talent? So, so now I, I sort of meet everyone there. You know, it was, it was John Belushi was there at the time, and Harold Ramis was there. They're a little bit older than me, and a little on that. They were there, you know, while I was a waitress. And uh, Joe Flaherty, if you know any of these names, and uh, uh, Joe Flaherty's one time, Joe Flaherty came back in the kitchen while I was back there, like trying to figure out how to pour a cup of coffee or something for the people out front, and he said. He said Niehauser, my name was ne is Betty Thomas Niehauser, and at that point it was Niehauser. Why do you have to come out there and serve coffee to the front row when I'm doing my soliloquy? <laughs> You're so damn tall, no one can even see me. Half the audience is like, I was like, whoa, I, I had no idea, <laughs> you know. And uh, I, I guess it was kind of true, you know. It's kind of true. You try to go, uh, what can I get you, you know? But, but sometimes, you know, people talk and you have a conversation, and you know, I'm sure it was horrible. Um, so who knew that from that world of sort of being the worst waitress in the world for a for an actual show to go on while I was doing my job to being on stage uh, soon, you know, within two years I was on stage. How many women were around that time as comedians? Well, in the company, in the actual company that worked there and was equity and got paid, the guys on stage in the main stage, there was two women and five men. That was the traditional way to go. And the explanation I got for that was uh, there aren't many funny women. Wow. And therefore, we can only find two at a time. And usually that's hard. Usually one of those we've compromised greatly <laughs> with hiring them. So um, that's how it was. And by the time I got into the company, I went from a waitress to, uh, I don't know, I went to the workshops. And then I met Del Close, and you can't talk about improvisation without talking about Del Close, who is the father of long-form improvisation for sure. Billy Murray was uh, also in my touring company with me, I think. Yeah, he was, I think. And uh, it was, you know, it was crazy. It was, it was, didn't seem like it was really a great career choice, but it was a lot of fun, and uh, it beat waitressing. That's the most I can say about it. So I did that for a while. And then this wonderful woman uh, who is a writer in Hollywood to this day, um, Eugenie Ross Lemming, was in the company at the time with John and a couple other people. And I can't remember how this went, but she, she decided to quit. She was going to be in a band. And she so she wanted to quit. And I was the person who knew her roles. So they said, well, Betty, why don't, why don't you take over? And and they go, until we find a real actor. And I go, yeah, that's that's great. Until you find somebody, that's great. So I, I'm suddenly in this company with the people I used to block by serving coffee in the audience. And uh, I I was kind of lost. You know, I was, nah, I was thinking, oh, this isn't really my thing. I, I'm pretty sure those people went on at that time I don't know if Saturday Night Live was just starting. No, it wasn't. Not yet. So anyway, I, I, I took her position. And for six months, I was just like, it's the most aggressive behavior I've ever seen in my life. And it's mostly guys who have one woman. And they kept hiring new other women, too. 
and firing them and hiring them. Firing. I was the only one that was sort of hanging by a string. The director came in one day to me right before a, a, a performance and took me in the office. He said, uh, Betty, this is Del Close. Uh, <coughs> Betty, uh, this is the thing. Uh, uh, I'm going to fire the other woman tonight. I go, don't wow. tell me that. I have to do a show. He said, no, you can't say anything. I went, oh, my God, don't say that. And he said, oh, and by the way, uh, <clears throat> I'm going to fire you, too, unless you get better. I mean, quickly, really quickly. I mean, I'll give you two weeks, but, you know, that's about it. <laughs> so so I was like, I was sort of shell-shocked, went out and did the show, you know, didn't say anything to my friend who was the other person. I just didn't know what to say, and I thought it would ruin her night. So eventually, yes, she was fired later that night or whatever. And they brought some other person. They brought a million people in. They had no one really to replace her. It was a stupid thing to do. But uh, I was like, what the heck is going to happen? I got two weeks. I don't even know. How do you get better? All right. So here's the point. I guess I took 50 minutes to get to. The concept came to me when I was backstage putting together a set, which and so I was backstage and we were putting together uh, the uh, show, five men, two women. The other woman really knew, me fairly knew, and soon to be fired, I had heard. I was like, the guys always put their scenes up there and first, you know, and they're always have the idea. And sometimes they go, oh, wait, 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 we need a, we need a, a hooker. A Betty, be the hooker, be the hooker. Okay, you be the hooker. You know, it was like, it was sort of a mess. And so... I I remember turning to my uh, to whoever was there. I, I I think it was Debbie Harmon, a wonderful actor and now director. And I said, uh, Deb, um, I'm not going to do any scenes with you until I become one of the power people in the company. So don't bother me. Don't even look at me when we're putting the set together. Because I said, in any scene you can get in, but we're not doing any scenes together because we're too weak. We can't support each other. We just can't. And I see where the power is, and I'm going there, and I advise you to do the same. <laughs> so then I just, every scene that Billy Murray or, or John Candy or whoever was putting it together, I would go, I, 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 I'll be the sister. I'll be the whatever. I'll be the mother. I'll be the, you know, I would just put myself in there. And, and lo and behold, after you know, less than three months, oh, yeah, I didn't get fired, um, I'm not sure why, but I didn't get fired. And so in three months, I, I, in a way, I was part of the power pack. You know, I was putting scenes up on the board, blah, blah, blah. And so I remember the night. I, I, I still remember this night. I'm a million years old now. So I, I, I remember when I turned to Deb Harmon and I said, hey, Deb, I got an idea for a scene for the two of us. And she said, are you kidding? The two of us? Are you sure? I mean, we. I said, Make it easy. It's going to be all right. I think I, I think it's going to be all right. Um, let me see if I can figure it out. And so I just said, put up the curse. So they put up the curse, and they were like, "What's the curse? What is it?" I said, "Never mind. Deb and I are going to do it. You'll, you'll see." And I, it was based on a certain suggestion on mother's secrets or something like that. And uh, so we went out and we just started the scene. And I based this scene on as Dell had taught us: always use your personal life, which I hold to till today. Today, I still try to use my personal life. In every directing job I get and everything I do and every way that I talk to my actors, I try to use my personal life because it's what I really know and have experienced. And it turns out usually when you go from the specific to the general, it can hit people in a very specific personal way. So anyway, 
I go out there and I, I do a scene about my mother. I base it on my mother when she first told me about getting my period. And she said, we call it the curse. I have to talk about you to something very important. It's called the curse. And I was like, what? Oh, mom, that's so out of it. It's like, no one calls it the curse. So we do the scene based on that. And Debbie plays me and I play the mother. And lo and behold, we are getting screams from the audience of recognition, like, oh, my God, no. And so here's when you know at Second City that you're doing it in those days. And I bet to, the, to this day right now, when the strongest performers in the company knock on the door during your scene or pop in, you know you're doing a great scene because they want to be part of it. <laughs> and they're not going to let you have all that fun by yourself. They're going to go. So first thing happens, Billy Murray knocks on the door. And goes, I know what you're doing. I know what you're talking about. I know, what, you know, plays the brother, the obnoxious brother. Anyway, the scene became a classic. And I, I suddenly I felt free. And I hope that Deb did too. And we did other scenes. There had really pretty much never been funny scenes done at Second City by two women until that, as far as I know, until that time. There was always a man and a woman or a man and one woman and three men, <laughs> but so that's that was my first sort of anti-PC. I, 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 I did not know what to do. You know, I did not know how to get power and feel free. And I, so I tried that. And for Deb and I, I think it worked. But it wasn't probably pleasant for Deb. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I, to this day, I mean, she's, she, she got hugely successful. And she was, you know, very, very talented, very smart. And... Um, Maybe if it had been somebody else, that wouldn't have been, it would have been destructive, very destructive, but for her, it was okay. But for you, I mean, what, what motivated you? I mean, the fact that you were going to get fired and then you knew you had to step outside of the box and do something. So that was that the motivating factor at the time? I don't know. I don't think I know. I don't, I would, I would be, you know, when you look back, you know how it is, uh, Gina, you look back and you make up some stuff about why you think it happened. It just happened. I, I saw that I couldn't, have fun. I saw that. I was not going to have fun. And I was not going to have, we, we were not going to be able to, Deb and I would not be able to be powerful people unless we somehow got the power. I, I did understand that part. But otherwise, why I did it, it was just about, you know, I'm a middle class white girl. I, I was taught to you work hard and you always succeed. If you work hard, you will succeed. And so that's all I was doing is trying to work hard and <laughs> figure out how to succeed. I think I didn't have any you know, I, I, I suppose in some way, maybe the you're going to be fired thing was a, a slight impetus to the, to the sort of technique I used, but I didn't think about it that way. You know, once two weeks were up, I was like, hey, I don't get fired. <laughs> I remember Delta, he said, the reason I'm giving you two weeks, by the way, is because you have the potential to be good. You just aren't good yet. And I was like, hmm. I took that seriously, though. I was like, okay, how do I... How do I get to that potential? <laughs> you go from that to becoming Lucille Bates on Hill Street Blues, where not only did you win an Emmy, but you were nominated six times for an Emmy. Yeah. I don't think they had anybody else who thinking that. Oh, come on. I'm not kidding. I mean, it was like, it, they just loved the show. You know, really, it was, they loved the show and there weren't that many women on it. So, you know, like. We all got nominated, I think. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I think it's a little bit more than that. But then in the late 80s, you made the move 
to go into TV and film directing. Now, I would imagine at that time there were probably uh, zero female directors uh, or maybe maybe one. There was Penny Marshall. You are absolutely right. She's the greatest, absolute greatest. I wish she were here right now. So, yeah, Penny Marshall was there and she was doing I mean, there had been a couple people before her, you know, but in the modern times, Penny was the one who was doing broad, big, big comedy movies and and really succeeding in a big way. Remember, Gina, nothing in my life anyway, and I suspect in most lives, seems to be abrupt or sudden. It's all the river that's been flowing along, you know, for quite a while. Turns out I had done a networking thing when I was 23 or two or one, where women used to all get together and say, I'll call you and you call me and we'll support each other. And it did kind of help. And uh, one of the things I said in that, I found a notebook that, that said, I'm going to be a director. Now, I hadn't even been in Second City, I don't think at that time. I hadn't been anywhere. So it was just shit that was in my head. I'm going to direct this movie about an underwater man, half half whale, half porpoise, half, I don't know, you know, I was crazy. But, um, but at least I had the idea, you know, it was somewhere in my brain. And I, I do remember thinking, now I, I thought, now I'm on Hill Street. So I would watch, everybody watched everybody else's. I, there was so much to learn and there was such good acting going on. I really wasn't trained at all. I realized I had to take acting to figure out how to act because I really didn't know how, I, which I did. And I, it did help me. And the directors were so helpful. But so that the transition, as I'm trying to say, in a long, long, windy way is is always happening. You know, I would I would watch how they set up a shot. I would listen to directors give direction. And I had been an artist. I know what good composition is, dude. I know what it is and I can find it. And I studied photography in college. I knew all the lenses. I knew everything that they're. I mean, most actors would say, so where are you cutting me? I would say, what lens is on? You know, it was a different approach. And nobody would ever let me direct that show, by the way, thank God. And nobody ever let Charlie Haye, the other person who wanted to be a director, neither one of us got to direct that show. So Hill Street ends, and uh, I've been observing for one year on a show called Hooperman, which is John Ritter, lovely dude. I would not be a director if he didn't say yes to allowing me to direct. I can't thank him enough for that. And... uh, he was starring in this, in this cop show, but it was a funny cop show. So it was right up my alley. It was like everything I knew how to do. I, so I had been observing for like nine months on the show because Bochco ran the show. Or he, he, I don't know if he ran it exactly, but it was his show under his banner. And uh, so they let me, you know, I, I, they call it observing or shadowing now. I just stayed there the whole nine months. Every day I pretended like I had a job because I, I had enough money to last about two years without a job. And I thought, well, let me do the first year doing this and see what happens. And from doing that, every director, by the way, who worked on that show was so forthcoming and so supportive. Again, I say your community is where it's at. Every man, every white man there helped me tremendously. I I don't like it when people deny the fact that white men have not reached out to women in my era, that's all there were, really, is a bunch of white men, one or two people of color, really, almost none, and one or maybe two women. And so 
all those people reached out to me and the men had the most power. And once again, once again, I would say if those men had not included me and reached out to me and helped me, I would not have had a career. So I, oh, Mm -hmm. I thank those people. I thank the women also, but they didn't have the power to take me another step and the men did and they did it. So I was on a, a ridiculous celebrity tennis tournament event in Mexico somewhere. I don't know. You know, you do what you, you know, people say, hey, do you want to go here? It's for free. If you, I go, yeah, definitely. So it was on a weekend in between my uh, observing and shadowing on this show. And I, uh, I, who knows how this stuff happens? I sat next to a guy named Army Archer. Army Archer mm-hmm. had a column. In I think the reporter, which is an industry magazine, was it Variety? It could have been Variety, but I thought it was a reporter. It, it could have been Variety. Beats me. But who he was? He had a column all his own. He was pretty famous for having the column. He's no longer with us, but he was a great guy. And he uh, he sat next to me for some reason at this dinner. I was like, "Hey, Army, how's it going?" He goes, "Fine, Betty. What's going on since Hill Street? What are you doing?" And I had done this one movie, uh, Troop Beverly Hills, very funny movie. If you're a girl and you're about 12, it's a great movie, mm-hmm. 10 to 12. Mm-hmm. I loved and it. Sometimes if you're 30, yeah, there you go. You're the right age. Probably. <laughs> yeah. So uh, still, women who are about 35 come up to me in the airport all the time and go, wait a minute. I just heard your voice. That's Velda Plender's voice. Are you Velda Plender? Oh, my God. That is hilarious. <laughs> like, Holy shit. How could you remember that? But anyway. So I, um, I, uh, I said, oh, I, I don't know. I'm, uh, I'm directing. And why did I say that? Because I'm an idiot and I didn't know what to say. And I wasn't thinking very quickly. And I probably had a glass of wine. And I said, I'm directing. And so <laughs> he said, oh, that's so great. I can just see you as a director. I think you'd be a great director. What are you directing? Well, that was a hard question to answer. <laughs> since I wasn't anything. And I said, Oh, uh, Hooperman, you know, oh. John Ritter. And he said, oh, fabulous idea. Cops, funny, John, love it. So good. And I said, yeah, well, I have to go, Army. See you later. <laughs> Great to see you. And I ran away. <laughs> Unfortunately, though, on Monday morning, uh, Army puts in his column, Betty Thomas to direct Hooperman. Betty Thomas to direct <laughs> Hooperman. And I was like, oh, my fucking God. Excuse me. But I, I was just horrified. A friend calls me up and says, how'd you do it? How'd you do it? How'd you? And I said, I didn't do it. I didn't do anything. I don't have a job. I don't know. This is totally my fault. <laughs> so then I get a call from the producer, Bob, I can't, RJ, Bob, I can't remember his name. But uh, he he's Bochco's right-hand man, and he runs the show. He calls me up, and I go, I know why you're calling me. He said, you do, huh? Um, he, he, he said, I see you're directing our show. And I <laughs> I know, I know, that was crazy. I, 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 I don't know why that happened. It was, it was a total mess. He said, "Okay, stop." He said, "Let me just say something. We were thinking of having you. You know, we do a show during Christmas, and no one wants to direct during Christmas. So we were thinking of maybe you've been around for nine months that we might give you that spot to direct. So now I guess we kind of have to give you that spot to direct because, <laughs> you know, everybody's asking me, oh, my God, how cool that you gave Betty a job. And I'm going, hmm. And so I said, you're kidding. You mean I get the job because I lied? And he goes, yeah, oh my that gosh. is why you get the job. <laughs> so that's horrible advice, I would say, to anyone. But, you know, you go with the flow. What can I say? You go with the flow and you hope for the best. 
And he said, I'm going to remind you that if you fail at the job, you will never work as a director in this town. <laughs> you know, the, the classic. So I didn't fail. Well, you went on from that. And like you said, you did Troop Beverly Hills and the Brady Bunch movie. And then you did Alvin and the Chipmunks, the sequel, which made you the highest grossing female director at the time. <laughs> Believe me, that's the one thing you wish you wouldn't have on your resume. <laughs> what you do to get to become the biggest success in women's history? Well, I directed the Squeakquel, you know, the Chipmunks. But but I still say it all is meaningful and it's all great. I did some great movies in between. I I, I would I mean I thought the Brady Bunch movie, which really made my career, was a way cool, way important way satirical movie that three-year-olds didn't get the satire, but 30-year-olds did get it. So it succeeded in a huge way for me. And uh, again, it was a, sh a sh when I said, when I heard it was the Brady Bunch movie, I, I of course told my agent and he said, you should go in on this. This is perfect for you. And I said, first of all, I'm not doing any movie about the Brady Bunch. That's stupid. And second of all, I hate when they do movies about TV shows. He goes, yeah, but this is, actually, this has a point of view. I mean, this is, I think you should. And I was like, no, no. So again, people had to force me because I'm an idiot <laughs> to do things that are good for me. You know? So I, anyway, I, I love doing that movie that really taught me a lot. I had been directing. I was doing a movie of the week at the time. It was pretty interesting, but that movie solidified me. Spielberg saw it. He told me he loved it. Uh, Ivan Reitman saw it, which was the reason I got to do, uh, yeah, but not that. No, it was Late Shift. I think that's my best movie, Late Shift. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. Late Shift was an HBO movie I did after the Brady Bunch, and everybody said you can't do that. You can't do, you can't do a TV show after you've done a movie. And I go, it's the best. It's just too good. I have to do it. And it was the story of how Jay Jay Leno got the Tonight Show and not David Letterman, who was supposed hmm. to get it. So it's a pretty interesting story, and uh, and it was I, I think it's still my best movie. But in terms of each scene is done correctly in terms of how I shot it and how it was acted. I don't know, it just things were. But yeah, I wouldn't have gotten Howard Stern either after I did Late Shift. That was with R Ivan Reitman, and then Ivan said, "I want you to do I I want you to do Howard's movie," and I said, "I don't even like Howard." And he said, he said, no, you don't even like Howard's show. And I said, yeah, that's right. I don't like his show. And he said, well, I, I bet, you know, Howard really likes women and he can't have a man in control. So I can't really direct it. And you're a good director. And I think you should direct it. So eventually I read the script, saw how good it was. And I had to go meet, you know, Howard. It's always men that are helping me get forward. I mean, they just, they've, they've done everything for me. They really have. I recently watched that movie and I thought about you when I was watching it. And what I know of Howard Stern is just how brash and how in your face he is. And when I was watching that movie, I noticed the sensitivity that you brought to him. I mean, it's like you humanized him in some way. Yes, I, I think you're right. And I think Ivan Reitman is smart enough to know that that's exactly what he needed. Someone who could be funny and had a heart and knew how to find that. And because Howard is hugely sensitive and has a huge heart, even though he was totally messed up many times in his life and didn't understand anything. Now he does 
totally different person. But even at that time, he loved, you know, his his love story with his wife and the whole like their friendship. And I mean, there was a lot of good stuff there. And Howard really had no idea <laughs> what we were doing. And not really. I mean, he, he's just good at being himself. Really, really good. But yeah, I think you're right. I think that was important to the story. And uh, so I tell one thing, I have one little thing for that. And that is, I go in, yeah, I go into the green room in New York where Howard's shooting, you know, where they're doing the show. And uh, he's he's gonna take a, a commercial break, a break to come in and meet with me. Because of course, once again, the star has to sign off on the director when you're just a baby director and not a big director. That's how it works. In fact, that's how it works, even with your big director for a lot of it. Um, so so I'm kind of nervous, you know, and I'm in the green room waiting, and Howard comes longing down the hall, and he comes in the door, he goes, oh, hi, Betty. And he has, like, jean overalls, you know, like, just silly. He looked like an old hippie, or I don't know what he looked like, and his long, long hair, and he's six foot six, you know, so he was towering even over me. I really am not used to looking up to people. So I think that is part of my problem, perhaps, but, and also my benefit sometimes. So I, you know, I shook his, he put out his hand to shake and I grabbed his hand and he was shaking. He was so nervous. He was shaking. I knew as soon as I took his hand that I was going to direct the movie and it was going to be good. I just knew it. When you're the director, you are you are large and you're in charge. And there were so few women back then, and there's even so few women now who are directing. So what was it like for you? I mean, what was it like back then? And, and what type of characteristics do you have within you that made you successful at it? I have no idea. I, I, I don't know. Here's, here's- I mean, do you really know? You you kind of make up stuff as you go along, but I don't know if you really know. You you, I I I'm kind of a likable person. I'm fun to be around. You know, you have to spend all these hours on a set. It's much better to have someone who's a little bit fun, and nice. You know, and uh, I don't know. Maybe you know, I don't know. Um, I think here's one thing. I I knew what I wanted to do. I was well prepared. And I had a funny sort of leaning, you know, where I could find jokes in places that people didn't know jokes existed, or I could help the joke that was already written become a better joke or a longer joke or a bigger joke. I don't know. I, I like people. I, this is, this is sounds somewhat sexist or something, but I like men, you know, I, I like men. I like hanging around men. I had an older brother I have an older brother still, and uh, I liked him so much and sort of idolized him probably at a certain point in my life. But uh, I, so I, I think I transferred that somehow that I, I just like being around men very much. I love being around women, <laughs> but, but at that point, I was around women in my personal life, but not in my professional life because there just weren't that many of them on the, you know, in the crew. That changed over the years, but in the beginning I was. And I really liked being there. And I told you this at one point, Gina. I said, I'm not a PC girl I'm, or woman or whatever. I'm, I did become one of the guys. You know, I think that started to happen in college even. I became one of the guys. I, you know, I said the F word way too much. And uh, I, I just, uh, you know, I, I, 
I, I was one of the guys. I just, it, it made everyone comfortable. The thing I didn't want to be, and I saw it sometimes, is I did not want to be their ex-wife because that there's a voice sometimes that comes out of women that is strained. And I don't know, there's something about it that just makes men, you know, they just curl up and they want to die. I don't know. They want to walk away. And I didn't want to have that voice. And I, so I became, you know, a buddy more than a, a girl, I guess. I don't know. So I became more, I did adopt sort of male, but I'm always a girl. You know, you know who I am. I mean, I, in the DGA, which I should talk about at some point, the Directors Guild of America, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a girl. I'm always a girl. I'm always passionate. I'm always a girl, but I do bond with men very, very well. I just, I don't know. I think that's part of it. And there is one person I think that I, I've always tried to keep around me, and that's the no person. The person who knows how to say to you, Betty, no. Uh-uh. Horrible idea. Really horrible. Because when the more successful you become, the more you go, every idea I have is so good. Why? It's amazing. <laughs> how did I get like this? <laughs> But the truth is, no, every idea is not perfect. And a lot of them are just shit that comes to the top of your head and you just spout it out because you're used to spouting out stuff. You know, you have to. So I, I was lucky to have those people in my core little support group. And I think without those people, I, I would have failed. As a leader, that's an important person to keep around you. You had mentioned the DGA earlier. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your involvement in the Directors Guild? Uh, yeah, just uh, the D Directors Guild of America. It's, it's the union, I guess you would call it, even though it's a guild. It's, there, are, there are unions for Screen Actors Guild and the Writers Guild and the Directors Guild. Those are the three big ones. And I was, again, brought on to understanding what leadership in the Directors Guild was by uh, white men, a few white men that uh, were, were powerful at the time. And the whole idea of the Guild is to, for economically and creatively, to support directors, to support them in their creative choices and make sure they have the freedom to make creative choices and to support them in, so that their salaries can't be cut, they can't be fired. They can, it's, it's a union. And uh, now it, it and in the you know through the out throughout the years it has become more and more uh, sort of the appearance of the DGA has become more and more feminine or female and also has become more has more color has more people of color involved in the actual leadership of it and now even more since after this year I hope it will continue to grow in those two areas. I was one of the first people around as a woman because people brought me in because I was interested because I, I, I wanted to know what's the deal. You know, I, I was just curious really. And then once people saw I was curious and also I may say my name was recognizable. So if I wanted to run for the council, for instance, for the Western directors council, which is a group that makes a lot of decisions and I ran and people would look at the list of people running. They go, oh, Betty Thomas. That's that Betty Thomas girl from Hill Street. You know, I mean, literally, that's probably what people thought. And they go, oh, yeah, I know that girl. I'll vote for her. <laughs> so in the beginning, you just have that. That's what might all be the only thing you have. Now, if you happen to become an important person in terms of you try to find out what's going on, you try to help 
the decisions being made affect more people, including females and people of color. I mean, you, you sort of set your goals and you, you, you start out by being pretty quiet and you don't say a lot and you don't want to, you know, tip the boat. And then pretty soon you, you say a few things and then you find yourself tipping the boat and saying, here's what you got to do guys. <laughs> and so that's how it works. You know, you don't, st- at least I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know how to walk in a room and go, all right, everybody. White guys, go over there. All right, everybody else, I want to talk to you for a minute. <laughs> I mean, I, did, I never, I never had an agenda. I don't think in the, you know, in the beginning, I just wanted to find out. But once I found out, then I saw that you might need to try to move people in a certain direction, and it might be important. So it was, it's been very important to me in terms of. Uh, being part of the leadership of the, I was first vice president, and now I'm secretary treasurer, which is a, a great position to sort of be supportive in every way and know where the money goes. I, you know, we're going to have a female president pretty soon at the DGA. I love saying that. Is it going to be you? <laughs> we had one. No, it will not be me. Oh yeah, that's what I was going to say. Is I don't want to be the president ever. I will never be the president. I should. I could have already been. I think the president once, but I do not want to be the president. I think it's a sort of a horrible job <laughs> that you have to uh, place uh, your own feelings underneath the idea that you are going to support the guild no matter what. That you want the guild to succeed, not you and not your views so it's it's makes it a little hard it's something i i'm not good at i would never be good at i'm good at saying what i think i'm not good at saying what mm-hmm. what should happen so but i i, I think we are going to have a female president and i think that'll be very good for all of us and recently we took over uh i say we took over because we we have elections uh Convent a convention and elections every two years, and we 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 I think we raised the amount of women in leadership positions by sixty two percent. Wow! <laughs> took over the entire. It was pretty wonderful. It was pretty amazing, and it was all about women all getting together beforehand and going. Here's what we're going to do. Yeah, I'm going to nominate you. You're going to nominate me. I'm going to back you. I'm going to only vote for you. I'm not going to vote for that guy. I'm going to, and we just planned it all. And all the women who were part of putting that together are the powerful women of the future that are there at the DGA. All, and I was just one of them. I was just one of many. That is awesome. I love that. The last thing I want to go into is: Did you make any personal sacrifices to get to where you are today? There, there does seem to be a sacrifice in terms of personal life, at least in the job that I picked as being director and possibly in many, you know, in charge jobs, the executives in charge. There is a, there is, there is a sacrifice and there does seem to be, you know, we're, tra- we're talking about uh, parenthood leave now in terms of stuff. We're just getting to that now in ours, in our union, but it's weird. I remember when a lot of men directors were sitting, I was sitting at a table with a number of male directors and they were going, and I said, well, the, the women directors, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, wait, don't ever say women directors. You're not a woman director. You're just a director. I go, yeah, that's true. That's true. I am a director, but I happen to be a woman director. And they said, no, don't ever say that. <laughs> I was like, okay, I, I get what you're saying. And, and I like it. I like it a lot. I'm just a director, but I happen to be a woman. All right, let's start there. I am a woman, which means I'm the wife. 
I'm the girlfriend. I am the person who takes care of the kid for the most part, and I'm making dinner for the most part, but I'm never home for dinner. Um, so, you know, you guys have these wives that are at home or girlfriends or whatever. You usually mm-hmm. have three or four wives. You have ex-wives and wives and wives, and you have a different situation. I don't have that situation, and I have to find a man who, who wants to fit into that lifestyle, and that is not so easy. That's not so easy. So did you? So I think there was... Yeah, a couple times. <laughs> More than one. <laughs> um, so how do men respond to you? I don't know. You want to talk to them? Hey, honey. <laughs> no. Was it intimidating to men? I mean, because I know how it impacted my mate or other men who I had dated um, coming up along the way. I mean, they're very intimidated by a big woman. Yeah. I, who I, I was smart and and funny probably too yeah <laughs> and, uh, yeah uh i don't know i never i never got to hang out with the people that were t- intimidated so <laughs> i only had people who were not intimidated so i don't know how that works <laughs> um, it does take a special man though it does for sure i think you're right i think you're right and you know that and uh yeah, yeah i agree with that at the and I think those are the most interesting men that exist um, that because they're uh, they're so confident in themselves that they're never really competing. And they they appreciate seeing a woman who is strong and 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 everything else, too, strong and and weak and nice and not nice and everything. Miss Betty, one thing before we go, I want you to know that we have something in common that I too was a uh, six foot blonde cocktail waitress in a comedy club before I joined the army. Get out of here. So I I do know what it's like to have a a five foot six comedian standing up on stage, (laughs) not being able to see over my big blonde hair. (laughs) And the last thing he wanted me to do was lean down because that was even a better show than me standing up in front of him. Very good. Excellent. Well, Betty, you are a delight. You are a pioneer, and I have so much respect for you and everything that you've done. So thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, Gina Bina, thank you for having me. And you know, I always wanted to be an FBI agent. So I was taken with you from the moment you walked in the room. I truly value you as a listener and would love to show my appreciation. Visit me at GinaLOsborne.com and I will send you a free ebook called Five Strategies to Navigate a Male-Dominated Workplace. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and are feeling inspired, please subscribe, rate, and review it on your favorite listening platform. Lead Like a Lady with Gina L. Osborne is produced and edited by Lisa Osborne. Theme music is Leading Lady by retired IRS criminal investigation attache Clarissa Balmaceda featuring Alex Castillo. Find us on social media through GinaLOsborne.com slash Lead Like a Lady. And don't miss an episode. Subscribe to Lead Like a Lady with Gina L. Osborne wherever you get your podcasts. 